0: are listening to Cold Lake Community Church Podcast. I hope today's message inspires you. Cold Lake Community Church, a place where families come together. Well, thank you very much for your Cold Lake welcome. That was very kind of you this morning. (laughs) So the the title of my message today is Thoughts on Christianity and Life. Um, The reason that's up there is because Natalie emailed me and said, hey, what's your title? And I gave it to her. That's not my title anymore. Um, So um, I had a whole bunch of stuff I wanted to talk about, and I'm pretty much going to end up talking about marriage today. A little bit of other stuff, but mostly marriage. So My opening cartoon is marriage-related. It wasn't so much that the rules were about to change. It's more about that the rules were about to exist. I got a real kick out of that because I was a bachelor once too. Anyway, so before my introduction was a whole screen but now it's got one thing on it that says I'll spend significant time on marriage because that is a topic that's near and dear to my heart and it is, it is. My wife and I have a great marriage and I know how much I appreciate that and I want that for more people. Um, I'm going to cover several small topics today as I go along, and the key to success when a sermon like this is preached is to grab a hold of one or two things along the way. Like there's space for notes in your bulletin, whip out your smartphone, take notes, whatever it is, but grab a hold of that one or two things that you can apply to your life going forward. <clears throat> However, I'm first going to talk about guardrails. Um, and this is not guardrails for your car, but guardrails for your life, so the the just. Dis- for this discussion, a guardrail is a personal standard of behavior that becomes a matter of conscience. And so it's something that you think about ahead of time, I will do this, I will not do this, and you put that guardrail here, and then you decide between you and God, that's what a matter of conscience is, that you're not going to cross that line. Because let's be honest, if we were to follow through with what society tells us to do in advertising, the media in general, and that kind of thing, we'd be pretty messed up. Like, society encourages us to flirt at the edge of disaster and then chastises and punishes us when we go over the edge. So the key is to set guardrails in our lives so that we don't end up going over the edge. And the fact is, if you hit a guardrail, it still hurts. It doesn't mean there's not going to be injury when you hit the guardrail. But it's going to be a lot less than if you go over the edge of the cliff. So the key question is, uh, where, where do you place the guardrail? And this guardrail stuff, it's all from a guy named Andy Stanley. He's got a big church called North Point in Atlanta, and he's got a book called Guardrails if you want to want to look into it. But the key, the key question is where do you place the guardrail? And you see in this picture, it's a very pretty picture, the guardrail is right at the edge of the cliff. And he's like, Why would you do that to yourself? He says, set your guardrail a ways back from the cliff. So that if the circumstances come up and we all make mistakes and circumstances are out of our control from time to time, you have to cross your guardrail. You don't go over the cliff. That was his main point. His example was, um, you know, he's a pastor of a big church, so obviously the enemy's trying to take him out because he has great influence. And he said, so to protect my marriage, I don't ride alone with a woman in a car. He said, that's what the thing was. He says, does that mean if I ride alone with a woman in a car, that something bad's going to happen? He said, no, of course not. I don't think anything is. But there's even less chance of something happening if I never do it. But of course, he says life happens, and he was on one of his book tours, and he ends up, though there was the, this person they sent to take him around to do his radio station interviews and stuff like that was a woman, so he ended up alone with a woman in a car. He said, did anything happen? No, it wasn't even a big deal. And he said, in fact, I found it kind of funny. I called my wife, and she's like, Sandra, Sandra, I'm alone with a woman in a car. And she's like, oh, no, not alone with a woman in a car. And they laughed about it, and, and it wasn't even a big deal. He said, but... He says, "I try, if at all possible, to stay on the right side of that guardrail so that nothing bad can happen." Proverbs thirteen twenty says, "Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools suffers harm." And of course, who better to talk about being a fool than Mr. T? Right? <laughs> keep us on, keep us on the straight and narrow. Um, of course, Proverbs is awesome. It's full of wisdom. Um, Being wise is having or showing experience, knowledge, and sound judgment. And a fool is one who acts unwisely or imprudently, a person who lacks judgment or sense. So what this says is whoever walks with someone who is wise will become wise. But what it doesn't say is that a companion of fools will become a fool. And normally that's how Proverbs is set up. You know, the opposite follows the the positive, negative follows the positive, however you want to say that. But this one doesn't say that. It says the companion of fools will suffer harm. And the reason that is important is because we all have people we know that are foolish, that are still a lot of fun to hang out with, and you still want to do things with them. But what this verse is saying is that if you spend enough time with them, they're going to be a train wreck that goes through a guardrail and over a cliff, and they're going to drag you along with it. So you might not even actually do anything wrong, but that doesn't mean you're not going to get caught up in something bad that's happening. So that that one's really about a guardrail, about who you want to hang out with. We all don't want to be seen as a do-gooder or a wuss or no fun or something like that. But in all honesty, um, your greatest regrets in life could most likely have been prevented by the use of a good guardrail, by setting the guardrail in the right spot. Because we all have the opportunity to do the right thing, but with that comes the opportunity of doing the wrong thing as well. And so really, the question you need to ask yourself is, in my life, where do I need to place the guardrails to protect myself, my marriage, my family, my finances, my jobs, that kind of stuff? What will you do and what will you not do? And if you don't think about these things ahead of time, when the situation comes up, you're less likely to make the right decision. Because under pressure, people make poor decisions as a general rule. And so if you think about this stuff ahead of time, you're less likely to make those bad decisions. So a few questions to ask yourself. Is my core group of friends moving in the same way I am? That doesn't mean you don't have friends that aren't Christians or stuff like that, but you should have a core group of people around you that have similar beliefs, right? Because you can't expect your non-Christian friends to agree with the way you do life and agree with all the decisions that you make because they have a completely different foundation that they base their worldview on. It's not on God. It's not on Christ. It's usually on do whatever feels good and I want to have fun. That's usually what it's based on. So you need to have a group of people around you that are pulling in the same direction that you are. And then he had a few points. He said, you know, your conscience should light up if you find yourself. Number one, needing to pretend to fit in. If your wife says to you, you know, when you're with that group of people, you're a different person, that should bother you. That should bother you a lot right away. Because we shouldn't have to be pretend. They're not really friends if we have to pretend when we're around them. If you find yourself under pressure to compromise Very, very similar to the first one. If you feel you have to compromise what you think is right and you think is wrong to be with these people, you got to ask the question if it's worth being with them. Saying something like, well, I'll go along but not participate. You know, what are they doing that you're not participating in that you should actually not be around? That was a weird sentence that didn't come out very well. But you get my point, right? If stuff is happening that you're not gonna participate in, I mean, if it's Stampede Wrestling, okay, fine, you can watch that and not participate, but if you're going out with a group of friends to do something, I know that's so old, right? Like 1980-something. I can't believe I said that. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> like that wasn't, you can ask my wife, that wasn't in the, the practice, practice at all. Um, <clears throat> moving on, number four. Um, Hoping the people you care about the most don't find out where you are or who you've been with. Right? So if you're sitting there, think, okay, if I run into Pastor Lance, this is the story I'm going to tell him. Right? You know, if, if I run into my wife, or if later I go home, my wife says, hey, where were you? If you have to come up with a story about where you were and why you were there, you've got to ask yourself again what you're doing. Stuff, you know, circumstances do spin out of control and you find yourself in weird situations, but that doesn't mean you can't stop. And if you're, the group you're with calls you a wuss and a girly man or whatever else, and you go home, who cares? Right? It's about making the right choice. And so once again, you've got to think about where you need to set your guardrails to protect yourself, your marriage, your family, etc. So that's guardrails. Now I'm going to move on to marriage. I'm going to spend the bulk of, the, bulk of the, well, the rest of the sermon. And this is a topic that's near and dear to my heart My wife's like, you have that in there twice. And I do, because it matters a lot to me. Because there's few things better than a great marriage and few things worse than a bad one. And even in a great marriage, you have struggles and times that you go through. So how does a marriage last? What makes a great marriage? Um, Funny enough, I was golfing two weeks ago. I had our club championship. And Sunday morning was my 18th wedding anniversary two weeks ago. And I was at the golf course. Uh Uh-huh. We we went out later. It was okay. Um... (laughs) But as we were chatting it up, as we were golfing, I said, yeah, today's my wedding anniversary. And one of the, there was a young guy we were golfing with. He's like, oh, wow, how long have you been married? I said, 18 years. He's like, wow. He said, so what's, what's the secret to making it last 18 years? And I was a little shocked. I'm like, like are, you, are you asking me the question? Like, you want to have this conversation? He's like, yeah, I want to have this conversation. I'm like, okay, let's have this conversation. I said, the key really is you have to be in each other's corner all the time, and you need to show the other person that you're in their corner, so that they know you're in your corner. So even when things aren't going well, I'm saying it much better now than I did then. Um, so even when things aren't going well, they know you're in your corner. I said it really has to do with a lack of selfishness. And he says, you know what? I've really been seeing that in my own marriage. He said, I said. my wife and I have a little guy at home. I said I was golfing with a group of friends earlier this summer, and my wife called, and the baby was freaking out, and my wife was on her way to a freak out. And if you've got kids, you know exactly what I'm talking about when you have a baby. And, uh, and he hung up the phone and he turned to his friends. And he said, guys, he said, I, I think I should go. Well, things aren't going well at home. I need to go help my wife. And one of his other friends is like, hey, you know what? Just finish out the nine and then you can go. Everything will be fine. And one of the other guy turns to him, and that's why you're divorced. <laughs> and, Whoa! That's slam. And he's like, he says, I packed my clubs up. I went home and I helped my wife. And I was like, well, good for you. If he can keep that attitude, he'll do, uh, he'll do well in his marriage. Um, This is the marriage triangle. It was really popular 18 years ago when I got married. I don't hear much about it anymore. Um, The guy who married us talked about it. Uh, And then my cousin got married a year after me, and he went to see my grandfather who had gotten quite ill and couldn't make the wedding. And they were talking about this. And the one thing my grandfather said to me, he said, Kevin, he says, you make sure that, that that triangle keeps pointing up, as in you make sure you keep God on top of that triangle. And you can see it from the picture there. If you have God in your marriage in this triangle format, as you move closer to God, you move closer to each other. And that's part of that becoming one idea that we hear so much about in marriage, but unfortunately in practicality never really happens. That's just a a simple little illustration. My first main topic in marriage is friendship. This is from Mark Driscoll's book on marriage. He covers a lot of topics, but he said they looked at over 180 books, him and his wife, on marriage. And there was nothing substantial on friendship. And really, your spouse should be the best friend you have. It should be the best relationship that you have because that's the person you spend the most time with. And we all want love, and we all want acceptance, and we should first primarily find that in our marriage and then from our family and our friends after that. And so what does me being a friend mean? Well, it means that you actually like being together. You have common interests. You miss each other when you're apart. It takes time, money, effort to be a friend. Proverbs 18.24 says, he who has friends must himself be friendly. So that means if you want to be friends with your spouse, you need to act friendly towards your spouse, right? It's not the old ball and chain or the old lady, right? It's your wife, the love of your life. That's the attitude you kind of have to have if you want to move towards that. And I was talking, and this was a number of years ago now. um, A friend of mine, he was separated from his wife and we were talking and and he says well what what do i do he says how do i how do we get back to where we were and we just started talking about like what initially attracted you to her what did you guys do when you were friends before you were dating and of course as time passes i had trouble remembering that i was talking to melanie this morning and i very specifically remember the first real conversation we had it was at an alliance church college and career thing in slave lake And everyone else had gone home. We were at a lady's house, and we were still chatting away. (laughs) She was probably in the kitchen wishing we were going to leave, but we were enjoying chatting so much we just kept doing. We talked about Star Trek Coke, and for the life of us, we can't remember the third thing, but there was three things we bonded over that night, that was the start of our relationship. And, uh, I mean, the good news is that that person is reconciled with their wife, and they're still together. Um, But the point of that conversation I had with them was, like, think back to the start. What did you guys start with, get back to that stuff, and then rebuild your marriage from that basis of friendship. Main topic number two, TV and marriage. So for all of you that are excited about getting another TV for the house, TV stands for transparency and vulnerability, not television. And that's the joke the guy uses in the book too. Um, (laughs) The book is called The Soulmate Marriage by Gary Frisbee, and it is a wonderful book on marriage. And he's a guy He's a psychologist. He studied marriage for 20 years. He writes books. He presents at conferences of other psychologists and that kind of stuff. He said, so with all humility, he says, I really do understand marriage, and I can tell you what it takes to have a good marriage. And the two main points he he boils it down to is this transparency and vulnerability. And he does a lot of premarital counseling, and he will not marry someone that he doesn't think has a good shot of making it. And he says, wow, does that make people angry when I tell them that. He's like, I'm not going to marry you because I don't think your marriage is going to last. And he said, people get indignant. He's like, well, I'll find someone else to marry us. And he's like, you can. And he says, but at least let me tell you why I don't think your marriage is going to last. And he says, so very few people will actually take it to heart. Most people will find someone else to get married. And he said, sadly, when I render those people later, I'm usually right. I'm not happy to be right. He said, but if you don't have this transparency and this vulnerability then you're not gonna do you have less chance of doing well. So he defines transparency as just letting people see who you are, not the more cool, more smart, more together version of yourself. You know the one you bring to church on Sunday? Cindy was talking about. And vulnerability is choosing to be weak, not strong, open instead of closed, caring and feeling instead of remaining aloof. And so the problem is if you have been hurt in a relationship before, and basically everybody has, this is really hard it's hard to expose yourself to being hurt again. And and if that's your case, I would just say maybe take baby steps. You don't have to reveal everything all at once. You can take baby steps and build that trust step by step step as you move towards this transparency and vulnerability goal. In a marriage, men... Men want to be respected. They want their wife to look up to them. And they're concerned that if they show vulnerability, the women will see them as weak and respect them less. So they're afraid to do it. Men are also concerned that her close group of friends are going to hear all about his weaknesses and vulnerabilities and give them side looks next time they're together and that kind of stuff. So there does need to be that certain amount of stuff that's shared between a husband and wife that goes no further. When a woman talks to a man about her feelings, she wants to know that she's being heard She does not want solutions. She probably knows the solution already. She just has to talk about it. And there's nothing wrong with that. Unfortunately, men are wired to fix whatever problem is placed in front of them. So they are like, well, if you feel like that, if you do X, Y, Z, everything's going to be okay. That's not what she's looking for. Unless she says, what should I do next? Unless those words come out, (laughs) you nod and you smile. Or frown, depending on the conversation. Okay? (laughs) And comments like, well, you shouldn't be feeling that way are not helpful in that situation, okay? Sometimes we just need to listen. So that's transparency and vulnerability. I told you I'd be moving fast today. Faking your way to a good marriage. This was an unbelievably fascinating article I read online. It was written by a woman, and basically trying to figure out who she wanted to be. She had already been divorced once, and she started to see that her spouse deserved the best version of her, not the worst version. She said, in my first marriage, I thought my husband is supposed to love me and accept me for who I am. So that means I can be lazy, mean, crabby, all those other stuff around him. And she Then she said, so, no kidding, our marriage didn't last that long. We split our wedding presents and moved our own separate ways. She says, now I'm married again. We have a child together. And she said, basically, any new mom can tell you this. You're so tired, you can hardly think straight. You don't feel like loving your baby. You don't feel like cooing to your baby. You feel like locking them in a room and running away. Right? And she said, but I just started talking about who, thinking about who I wanted to be. And then I started acting like the person I wanted to be. And I was like, wow. Like, she's not a Christian. This is just an article that I read. But she's, she stepped onto to a very key point in our lives, that you can build your character. You can choose how you're going to act. You cannot let the negativity you're feeling rule your actions beyond that. And we've all done it, right? If you think about you and your wife fighting on the way to church and then smiling on the way in the door, or you're about to have people over and you have it out and then they arrive and you turn from glaring at each other to smiling, hi, welcome to our home, come on in. But you can choose how to do that. And this isn't about play acting, which sometimes is what happens in those cases. This is about choosing who you want to be and then acting like that person. And her quote was, I faked it hard, I faked it well, and the more I did it, the more honest it felt. So this doesn't mean you don't get to let your guard down in a marriage. It just means you don't be a jerk because you can. It's really about choosing that best version of yourself and then developing those character attributes. Practice does make perfect. And the other thing she said is, I was changing into the person I wanted to be by pretending to be her. There was just such wonderful humility in the article and the way she wrote it. Because the other thing she said was, my second marriage is not perfect. How can it be? I'm involved in it. So here she was not blaming her spouse for the problems they were having, but taking responsibility for her part of where they were at. And I, I enjoyed the article so much. It's called How I Fake My Way to a Good Marriage. You can find it online if you're interested. But the key, the key point to take out of this is to act like the person you want to be, not necessarily like the person you feel like at that moment. The crazy cycle. This is also from a book entitled The Crazy Cycle. And the fact is that men crave respect and women crave love and affection. So you can see the crazy cycle on here. So that without love, she reacts without respect. And without respect, he reacts without love. And the problem is, if both parties feel this way, they hop on the hamster wheel and around and around and around and around they go. And they will never make any forward progress from that. Now... Uh, Ephesians 5, 22 to 25, is a very famous and a very misused set of verses. It's the verses that says, Wives, submit yourself to your husbands, and husband, love your wives. Sadly, it's been men that have misused this more than women, usually to get the woman to do whatever he wants her to do. But Bible verses are not written for you to use to manipulate someone into getting what you want. When you read the Bible, you're supposed to primarily read the Bible to see how it applies to you. So if you read a verse, you're not supposed to think, it's like, well, I know someone that could use that verse, right? That's not the point of a Bible verse. The point of a Bible verse primarily is to how it applies to you first. That doesn't mean it's not valuable for proof and instruction. instruction. That's in the Bible as well, that all Scripture is God-breathed and valuable for instruction and reproof. But it has to do with how you use it. And the best term I came up with is they call it Bible darts. So That's when you take a Bible verse and you sting someone with it, right? It's like, well, you're supposed to respect me. Yeah, well, you're supposed to love me. Right? That is not the point of a Bible verse. Especially when you consider Matthew 7, verse 3. How can you look at the speck in your neighbor's eye without first removing the log from your own? That's the verse that, that really points you in the direction of how to read the Bible, primarily to yourself first and then to others. And so the key with, with these verses, so verse 22 says, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. So question one, who is that verse talking to? Wives. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. So husbands, this verse has nothing to do with you. It's not for you to bring up. It's for your wife to read and your wife to worry about. In the same way, verse 25, it says, husband, love your wives. Just as, well, I'll stop there, right? So husbands, that verse is written to us. Our job is to love our wives, and we need to embrace that. And that means we need to be kind and compassionate and tender and loving to our wife. Now the second part of these verses really gives us the key. So verse 22, wives submit to your husbands as you do unto the Lord. Husband, verse 25, husband love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So you can see that the primary submission of the wife is first to God, the second submission is to the husband. And the husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So the, the idea behind that that we really need to grab onto is we love and forgive others because we have first been loved and forgiven by God. And if you can base your love and forgiveness to those around you on the fact that you've already been loved and forgiven us, the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those that trespass against us. That idea, it completely changes the look of these verses. You look at these verses as it's like, you know what, I'm going to love my wife just as Christ loved to the church, so that to the point of death. And the wife can say, you know what? I can submit to my husband as I do to the Lord because I know he has my best interests at heart. And if you're out there thinking, well, my husband doesn't have my best interests at heart, I get it. I get it. I get that I'm talking about ideals and that you're on a journey with your spouse, and it may get to that point where you have to take it step by step by step and build that trust in order to get to the ideal. You've got to start where you're at and work towards the ideal. But I want to tell you, with God, all things are possible. You may be here this morning thinking, my marriage is over, there's no hope, i got no chance of recovering from this. But with God, you do. You really do. He can do amazing things. And so to the men, I would say, if you want to be respected by your wife, you need to be worthy of respect first. If you're not worthy of respect, how can you expect anyone to respect you? And wives, be lovable. Don't be prickly just for the sake of being prickly. And that kind of thing. And I don't want to get into that because I don't want to sound like a jerk. But we, as respective sexes, have our <coughs> short points. <clears throat> and we need to work on those as much as possible. So just remember, when well, I guess the one point I didn't talk about. So I would encourage you to be the one that breaks the crazy cycle. Be the one that reaches out to save the marriage. So even if there's no... Respect, reach out in love. Even if there's no love, reach out in respect. Break the cycle and allow God to take care of the rest because you'd be amazed at what can happen there. The I-marriage. We'll talk a little bit longer about this one. Um, There's a little more to it. This is back to Andy Stanley. He's got a book called I-marriage, and uh, I think we even have the study here at the church. It is so impressive with what he goes through to get here. So he called it the I-marriage, I imagine, because it looks cool like iPod, but... Um, he said, you know, the I and the I marriage is the me, the individual. And if you take two eyes and you put them together, that doesn't always make a great relationship. And so, you know, the key is how do you get there? Um, Craig Hill, Family Foundations, we've done a bunch of their stuff here a few years back. He called it two fleas and no dog. So there's two people with all these needs, fleas. And they're looking for a dog to get their needs met. And these two fleas get together, they're both looking to have their needs met, but they're not looking to meet the needs of the other person as well. So that's where you get the two fleas and the no dog idea. And so where Andy Stanley goes with this is, he said, really it boils down to your view of marriage. Is it contract or is it covenant? And the simplest way to describe contract is I will if you will. That's a contract. And if you think about it from the business world, I'm a businessman. It's easy for me. It's right. I will do a service for you if you give me money. That's an I will if you will idea. Whereas a covenant, a covenant is I will even if you won't. And if you think about the Old Testament, God makes a covenant with the Jewish people, with the Israelites, saying that he will be with them, and that they will be his people. And he keeps That covenant, no matter what, even though the Israeli people or the Israelites walk away from him again and again and again. And we see those stories in the Old Testament. God saves a remnant and reestablishes his people because he made a covenant. So he keeps willing even when they won't keep up their end of the bargain. And that's what a covenant is. In between there, there's also a compromise, which is the nice version of a contract marriage, but it's still really a contract marriage. It's like, okay, I'll do this, you do that, I'll do this, you do this, I'll do that, you do this, and we'll just carry on. But it's really not, I mean, you do have to have that division of tasks inside a marriage, but in that case, it's really not a, a working together. It's two separate people dividing tasks and then going forward from there. And the key is, with a marriage, is the two becoming one that the Bible talks about. So we spent a fair amount of time talking about desires versus expectations. And he said, you probably talked about it before you got married, about your desires that you wanted to have this kind of house and this kind of car and this many kids going on this many vacations, just all that kind of stuff, desires of your heart, things you wanted to do with your spouse. The problem is somewhere between the ultra and real life of mortgages and loan payments and jobs and kids and stress that all comes from that, some of these desires pass over to expectations, and a lot of them will come from your parents' marriage and what you witnessed, right? Because I know, no guy wants to hear, well, this is how my daddy did it, and no wife wants to hear, well, that's how my mom did it, right? Those comments rarely lead to a positive result in a conversation that you're having. And so you have to take, he says, if you have an expectation, the difference is if you have a desire and someone helps you meet that desire, it's wonderful. If you have an expectation and someone meets your expectation, there's no reward for that. You've just done what you're supposed to do. Right? If you pay your mortgage payment on time, you don't get a phone call from a mortgage company saying, thanks for making your payment. You only get a phone call from them if you don't make your payment. That's when you'll get special one-on-one attention in a contract situation. So if you meet the expectation, it's like, whatever, right? You mix your expectation. That's what you were supposed to do. And so then he started talking about, you know, the key is moving those expectations back to desires. And, you know, one thing I did to my wife that that really wasn't very nice, And this was years ago when we lived up in Brady Heights. I needed some clothes, and they weren't there in the drawer for some reason. So I went downstairs, and they were all stacked nicely on the dryer. And I turned to her, and I said, and don't judge me. I said, lady, laundry's not done until it's back up in my drawer. I said it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I said it. And she said, then why don't you carry some up there? You walk by there often enough. To which I said, you're right. I should probably do that. Because I had nothing. <laughs> yeah, she had me. So she won. <clears throat> but yeah, my comment was completely offside, as you heard by the ooze when I told you what I said, right? And so really, and that's one of the reasons we have a good marriage is we're willing to admit when we're wrong to each other. And I was wrong, and I picked up the clothes, and I walked upstairs and put them away. <clears throat> and just, but she was right. I walked by the washing dryer all the time. And it never occurred to me that she would maybe enjoy some help carrying that back up to the room. So it's, it's that kind of idea where I expected her to have the laundry done and back in the drawer, and that was not necessarily a realistic expectation. And there was nowhere for her to go but down if she didn't have the laundry back in my drawer at the time that I appointed and never told her about. So it was a completely unfair expectation. And so really, when you get down to the root of what a Christian marriage should be, a covenant marriage should be. And I'll read it here because I don't want to mess it up. Um, And this this is how Andy Stanley put it. He said, no more Bible darts, no more parenting. You don't owe me anything. What you do with that freedom is between you and God. I hope you'll love me. I'm going to figure out what is in your box of desires, try to love you unconditionally, and wait to see how God honors that and how you respond. But I'm not going to get back into the I will, only if you will. I want to create the potential for God to do something special in this marriage. I'll be honest with you, that's the most terrifying thing I've ever said from up here. Because what you're doing is giving up control, and we all have aspects of our lives that we can control. And those hurts that we have in our past, we have to let those go if we're ever going to have a chance of having a marriage like this. Where each spouse knows the other's desires, and they work together to accomplish those desires and rejoice when they do. And it's whatever that desire it is, right? My wife always wanted to go to Australia. I got to take her. I figured this was going to happen. <clears throat> I could feel it this morning. You know, it, it's, the emotion comes from the fact that I do have a good marriage, and I see so many people struggling around me. Um, we're in a recession right now. Men have lost their jobs. People are struggling. I met so many people. It was, it was really just one bad week, but it, it happens all the time. Uh, I'll meet a husband and wife one year, and then the husband or the wife comes in the next year. We're now separated. And there was a lot of separations first thing this year, as people lost their jobs. Because if you're, if you're hovering at the edge already, a major event like the loss of a job or something like that can be the straw that breaks the camel's back. And, and I came home sad for a few days, and Melanie's like, what's going on? It's like, it's like every second person that comes to the door is splitting up. And it really, it was just one bad week where it happened, and then things kind of got back to normal. But the idea was still there. Um, I spoke to someone that does a lot of family law, and her words were, she said, Ben, I don't know how anyone in this town is married anymore. We're so busy. And that that's devastating to me. That's just so devastating. You know, and, and if you're divorced, I'm not judging you. thats That's not where this is coming from. Divorces suck. There's no nice things about them. They're painful on both sides of the equation. And, and then just everyone walks away with a lot of hurt. The point of today's, today's sermon was just was really encouragement. Right? I went through several things that can make a marriage stronger. And then really this, this major idea of this covenant, where I will even if you won't. And you have two sides I willing even if you won't. It just sets up this opportunity for an amazing thing where two people can come together and be one and trust each other and do things for each other and love each other, and that can save any marriage. It really can. God can intervene and save any marriage, no matter how bad you think it feels right now. Yeah. So finally, as I wrap it up, don't forget about the guardrails Use those guardrails to protect yourself and the world around you. You will never regret putting guardrails in place. You have regrets if you don't use guardrails, not if you do. Practice that transparency and vulnerability in your marriage. Be your spouse's best friend. Be willing to break the crazy cycle. And don't be afraid to fake it till you make it. Don't be afraid to act like the person you want to be. And finally, consider what God would have you do in this area versus contract versus covenant. What changes can you make to move towards the beautiful image of marriage that we see in the Bible, and I know I've probably touched some sore spots on people, and some of you are hoping your spouse doesn't elbow you or wishing your spouse was here and I said this this wasn't to make anyone feel bad, this was to encourage people that there is so much more out there for you in your marriage if you're not married yet and you're heading towards marriage, this is the ideal you're striving towards as you head into marriage and if A lot of us would say that if we had information like this and ideas like this to base our marriage on, we'd have saved ourselves a lot of grief over the years as we learned it the hard way. So don't be afraid to grab onto some of this and apply it to your upcoming marriage. and For sure, don't be afraid to apply it to the marriage that you have already. We hope you've been blessed by this teaching from Coley Community Church. Thank you for your continued support of this ministry. Holy Community Church, a place where families come together.